Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Rachel Strassman. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Joining us today is Professor of Public Policy and Sociology, Sharon Oslin. My peers, Kevin Karami and Catherine Ma chatted with her about the California Fair Chance Act. Thank you so much, Professor Oslin, for taking the time to join us on the second in-person recording of Policy Chats. Um, it's really good to have you here. I think the topic we're going to be covering today is really interesting and also important. Mm. I know it's a topic that you know students, faculty, um, and this campus overall focuses on, mm-hmm. prison to employment. But I think the specific act we're talking about today in particular is interesting. Um, I know a lot of students are interested in criminal justice in general, right. and I think this is a really important um, lot to know about mm. in this space. So before we kind of go deep into the weeds of the issue, I figured it'd be good to kind of set a foundation for our audience. Okay. If you can please briefly describe the main effects and the reasons behind the California Fair Chance Act. Mm-hmm. Why was this policy specifically passed and also why the provisions that were included in the policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe me briefly talk about the immediate impacts Okay, so I see the California Fair Chance Act as being connected to the larger decarceration policies that have been passed in California in particular Mm -hmm. over the past decade or so. So I think with growing public awareness and legislators' awareness about some of the harms of mass incarceration in particular and the consequences of that, I think there's been significantly retooled efforts to focus on policies and laws that help reduce mass inequalities, but also deal with some of the consequences for those who have been impact, justice impacted in various ways. Mm-hmm. So I see the California Fair Chance Act as kind of playing into that larger practice of California. It certainly it's not perfect. These, these policies, some are better than others. There's mm-hmm. problems with them, of course. But I think as a state, we're kind of at the vanguard uh, compared to most other states in terms of enacting some of these changes and trying to tackle and dismantle to some extent mass incarceration. We have a long ways to go, of course. In terms of the California Fair Chance Act specifically, this builds on many states, I believe it's 31, but I could be wrong about that figure, um, have enacted ban-the-box practices. Mm -hmm. So other states are certainly trying to address some of the consequences for formerly incarcerated individuals or individuals who have some kind of criminal record of some sort. And ban-the-box policies have actually, research shows they're mixed in terms of their efficacy. So some find that they work in terms of uh, opening doors for employment um, opportunities for folks and decreasing some of the discrimination. Other studies find that there's other ways employers can actually use to skirt those policies and still discriminate against people with records. Mm -hmm. So the California Fair Chance Act builds upon the ban the box um, kind of approach and policy in that it is, I call it like ban the box on steroids sort of. And I'm happy to walk through exactly what that entails um, because it's a multifaceted policy. Mm-hmm. And so the California Fair Chance Act includes banning the box. It also uh, prohibits employers from conducting background checks until after a conditional offer of employment. It mandates an individualized assessment if employers find a record in terms of explaining kind of why the offer is rescinded. And then it also um, provides a provision where individuals can appeal that rescinded offer. So I look at the California Fair Chance Act, um, which by the way draws on the um, EEOC's recommended guidelines um, in terms of eradicating or lessening at least discrimination. 
I see this as kind of following through longer in the process, the employment and the hiring process. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ban the Box just focuses primarily on the initial step of the application, right? It strips that question. This is like much more consistent throughout the process. So I'm not sure I answered all of your questions, but... <laughs> no, no, that was, that was really okay. good. Um, I think it was a great foundation for our audience to uh, understand. Okay. Yes, and kind of thank you for kind of sharing about the California Fair Chance mm-hmm. Act. And you talked about banning the box mm-hmm. and how there's it's imperfect. Yeah. And so we were kind of wondering what are the key pros and cons and how effective has this act specifically been after being passed? Yeah, that's a great question. As I said, ban the box is kind of mixed results in terms of the studies that have been done on it. I would say it's maybe better than nothing, but it's certainly imperfect. And some there's some states that have kind of enacted Fair Chance Act laws, but California, I would say, is the most stringent, and it applies to public employers as well, which is kind of rare. Typically, a lot of these apply to private firms. Um, So California does both. And we don't actually know a lot about the efficacy of the Fair Chance Act, So, and specifically the California Fair Chance Act. And so my colleagues and I have actually done a study to do surveys with employers in the Inland Empire to try to get a sense of what exactly their thinking is about it, their awareness of the California Fair Chance Act, and what their current hiring practices are. Um, and we have some pretty interesting findings. Do Would you like me to go into those? Or? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting so far. Um, this is a publication we're, we're working on getting out there. Um, but there's some very interesting results so far. In a nutshell, hiring decision makers remain reluctant to hire individuals who possess records. We know that based on our data and our surveys. We've done 524 surveys um, with decision makers from companies with five or more employees, and we did the survey in 2021. And the survey also includes an an experiment that designs to test whether applicant appeals uh, are an effective strategy to sort of counter some of this employer's resistance to hiring those with records. Mm So roughly 75% of hiring decision makers were unwilling to seriously consider an applicant with a drug, property, or violent conviction. Uh, Drug, property, and violent convictions remain greater barriers to employment compared to other stigmatized characteristics, including possessing a GED, um, employment gaps, and low credit scores. So these are still highly stigmatized characteristics, Mm -hmm. we find. And also historic patterns persist with employers in non-public-facing and labor-intensive industries and those with high percentages of unskilled positions have more favorable background check policies and a greater willingness to hire applicants with records compared to other types of employers. So that's one component. The other component is that we see lots of violations of the Fair Chance Act, unfortunately. So 50% of hiring decision makers indicated that their employer changed their background check policy after the Fair Chance was enacted. So that seems positive, right? However, we find that nearly 80% of hiring decision makers Uh, self-reported violating the Fair Chance Act by considering criminal history prior to a conditional offer of employment. So that's actually pretty troubling Um, when we think about the efficacy of a policy. That's problematic. And violations also are largely consistent across employers, irrespective of firm characteristics like company size. And hiring decision makers who reported their employer changed their policy to be um, Fair Chance Act compliance were as likely to consider criminal history in violation of the Fair Chance Act as those whose employer did not update their policy. So it's kind of an interesting finding as well and piece of this. 
so that's kind of what our preliminary findings are with this paper. And we were a little surprised that it was such a high number, actually. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, a lot of employers were not really aware of what the Fair Chance Act was, or if they were, it was very a general sort of, I would say, superficial understanding of all the components, because it's kind of a complicated policy. Where do we draw the line with AI? With the rise of ChatGPT and other AI programs, the implications of this fast-growing field are more prevalent than ever. Should the government create new laws and regulations to limit the use of existing works of art by AI algorithms? Two UC Riverside students face off about this issue at a policy debate, hosted by the UCR School of Public Policy on June 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific. Learn more by going to svp.ucr.edu. You can also find the RSVP link in our show notes below. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had a quick follow-up to that. Sure. And I'm not sure if you have the you know, exact numbers, yeah. but I figured it'd be a good question to ask, ask an expert. Hmm. This is a little outside the California Fair Chance Act, but are there any differences when it comes to how employers view someone who applied to a position at their company? Mm -hmm. um, are there differences based on the reason they were convicted in the past? So mm -hmm. are there any differences that exist if an employer finds out this person committed a violent crime? Mm -hmm. versus maybe a crime against the state like a, like a drug offense. Yes. Are there any differences or is it more so jumbled up together? Yeah, that's actually a great question. There's been some studies on this and that was actually our appeal component tried to tease out length of time and we did ask some questions about the type of offense that the person was convicted of. And so we find ultimately based on a lot of research that employers are less likely to hire those with some kind of violence record and more likely to hire those who have misdemeanor offense offenses versus felony offenses, which is not altogether surprising, but there's a lot of considerations that hiring decision makers take into account for when they consider hiring someone with a record, and these kinds of nuances exist and actually do produce somewhat different outcomes across the board. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That was one of the main things that I was thinking about in the topic was, is it more of holistic to employers? Do they see that you were convicted in the past and just say, I don't care, you know, absolutely not. Or it's interesting that they actually, there are differences that exist depending yeah. on how long the sentence was and, and what exactly the crime was. Kind of going back to the main topic, this is probably a really important question. Just historically, maybe in both our region in California, maybe even in the country in general, historically, how challenging has reentry been um, for previously convicted individuals? And can you maybe specifically outline the main obstacles that exist, mm -hmm. like the path to actually get back and reintegrate into society. Yeah. Individuals with records have a lot of obstacles to contend with. We know in the re-entry literature that one of the biggest challenges is finding employment, and we know that employment is often correlated with whether someone reoffends or returns to prisons. So there's many factors that are important, of course, such as securing housing, family relationships, social support, and, and so forth. But employment is hu a huge factor uh, in predicting someone's success, right, or successful reentry. So that's why we're kind of interested in this component, this component of employment so much. And I think that's why there are a lot of policies and talk about policies that specifically target employment opportunities and reducing some of those discriminatory practices that employers possess. I would say some of the things include from the employer side, include liability and risk concerns. Those are some of the things that they express that they're worried about in terms of making these decisions. We also know there's a practice of statistical discrimination that occurs. So even in 
well-intentioned policies such as ban-the-box policies, employer studies find that employers can resort to statistical discrimination practices. So they might not know if you have a record or not, but they might infer that based on gaps in employment history, race, ethnicity, other kinds of things. And so they might just be on, quote, the safe side. They might just automatically sort of reject you from the pool. And so we know that employers can kind of circumvent what even well-intentioned policies and continue to discriminate in terms of hiring against those with records. And of course, stigma is a huge factor in terms and barrier for individuals to, to successfully obtain employment. So that's the intention of many of these policies as well, to kind of shield them from stigma. But of course, we know that there's always a lot of discretion um, on the hiring decision maker side as well in terms of making these decisions and the considerations that go into that. So I think it's an uphill battle for sure for individuals trying to gain employment, particularly if they've been incarcerated for a long period of time and have more severe kind of offenses on the record. So yeah, I think it's, although things are shifting a little bit, I think there's a lot, lot of work to do and a long way to go still. Yes, absolutely. And I know you were kind of talking about how important becoming employed is mm. with re-entry, yeah. and you kind of touched upon the idea of stigma. So how can we better fight the stigma mm-hmm. of prior conviction for employment? What can the criminal justice system do mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, I don't see this as much about being uh, really something that the criminal justice system can do as well, besides, of course, decarceration and other kinds of things. I don't feel like this falls as much in their purview. Obviously, they can do things like restrict access to someone's record if there's online you know, sources that would disclose that. They could be more stringent about making sure that information is not revealed. That is something they could potentially do. But I think mostly it lies with advocacy efforts and policy efforts to, to kind of chain, challenge this, these longstanding practices and challenge the stigma that's associated with those who have a history of incarceration or some our justice impacted in some way. And so there are actually are a lot of advocacy organizations and nonprofits working on this, this issue that lobby legislators and really try to create a lot of educational awareness about the harm that these hiring practices can do for individuals. Particularly if we're if we say we're interested in giving people actually a second chance. I mean, we say we want to encourage successful reentry. We need to put our money where our mouths are, right? And so we need to be able to actually provide services, resources for people, training for people, so that the transition is smoother and so that they're not shut out at the very beginning of this process, right? And discriminated against despite being released and, and moving on with their lives. And so I think that that's a struggle. But there's some an interesting new bill, SB 809, who's introduced, that was introduced in the Senate, I believe in February or March of this year. And that basically is trying to earmark money for better enforcement of the California Fair Chance Act, because that's something that, that is kind of lacking. So we have this policy, but there doesn't seem to be very good enforcement of this policy. And so there's a new bill that was introduced and we'll see where it goes, but ultimately it kind of puts more teeth behind the policy itself in terms of enforcement and creates more stipulations of disclosure and and puts that onus on the employer so that someone can get that, obtain those records and potentially contest that in terms of being denied an opportunity or having an offer rescinded for them. That's really interesting, and I kind of based on that and something you said earlier, I just had two minor follow-ups. Sure. One of them was um, going back to what you said earlier about depending on whether or not you have a record, the impact that has on employment and reentry. Mm-hmm. But then also, I was wondering, are there any 
racial or gender, any other kinds of discrimination happening when it comes to employment that can maybe stack on top mm. of having a record? Yeah. And if so, how much of an impact does it have? Mm-hmm. Or maybe the impact is not huge? It does have a big impact. There's been studies that try to tease out the effect of race versus having a criminal record of some sorts. And studies repeatedly find that people are discriminated based on race and ethnicity. So the most hard hit are often African-Americans in terms of being targeted and discriminated against. And then the record also kind of adds on to that, right, and compounds the disadvantage or discrimination that can occur for individuals. So there's been really interesting audit studies by Diva Pager and others, um, and some of those are, you know, 15 years old or so that really show that, like, it's like a double whammy of sorts for individuals um, when they have this. And even in studies that try to tease out the differences, White individuals, if I'm remembering the study correctly, white individuals who have a record get callbacks more, and this is at the initial um, callback stage, than African-Americans who don't have records, right? So this really shows that it's not just about having a record, but it also intersects with race, ethnicity, and of course, class is a big component of that as well in terms of what types of jobs you're applying for and so forth. Yeah, definitely. I think that's also a really important question because, and what you said at the end just goes to show that you know, having a record obviously plays a role, but then there are so many other factors that can play that can make the situation even worse. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's really surprising that those with a record that are white have a better chance of getting called back versus African-Americans with no record. Exactly. And that just goes to show how big the impact of race is when it exactly. comes to employment. And sometimes it's hard to disentangle, right? Yeah. That's And so that's why it's it, it's great to have studies and we need more studies that try to decouple mm-hmm. to some extent what's going on here and get inside of the thinking uh, and assessments of the hiring decision makers, which is what we were trying to do with this, with our surveys, right? Of like, how do you make these decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And would you consider this candidate versus this candidate? How would you evaluate them? So we're trying to tease out some of that, but it's it's a much larger project and mm-hmm. endeavor. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and the other follow-up I had was more so on, this might be a little obvious, but it must be really challenging to try to, you know, when you're talking with an employer, mm-hmm. trying to see if you were to ask them what their thoughts are on something like the California Fair Chance Act, they would probably give you the societally mm-hmm. accepted answer. Mm-hmm. So what's the challenge when it comes to trying to convince people, hey, this is a really important policy that mm-hmm. needs to be not only passed but enforced? Because I think oftentimes the counter-argument they might give is, well, I reserve the right to hire who I want or who I don't want. Yeah. How challenging is that conversation specifically? Yeah, I mean, our study wasn't really getting at changing people's mind. We're trying to assess how how people think about this, right? How hiring decision makers think about this. But I do think, and that is a problem with surveys of social desirability bias, right? We know that people can try to give the PC or socially correct answers. But surprisingly, we did some a small amount of follow-up interviews. And surprisingly, we also, people were somewhat open with their thinking and said things I was surprised to hear them say. So we do have some more kind of, not just a survey, but we also have a smaller number, and I believe it's like 20-something interviews, follow-up interviews with individuals, asking them more about, like, what is your thought process? How do you do these assessments? How much are you aware of the Fair, excuse me, Fair Chance Act and these kinds of questions? And sometimes they, they incorrectly understood what it was. So they were, like, operating off of faulty information. Mm-hmm. That translates to the types of things they're doing in these hiring processes and that's a problem right if they're not even aware exactly of what the fair chance act entails yeah so that and i guess that relates to a bigger problem of like actually educating getting the word out exactly it sounds like it sounds like an obvious issue but it's Mm -hmm. a really big issue if people don't know it exists or they misunderstand what it implies then that can totally change you know their actions when it comes to employment and who they hire yes 
And I kind of, to kind of finish the episode, I, I thought we could maybe take a step back and look at the topic from a broader mm-hmm. lens, kind of on a, on a bigger you know, issue. I, obviously, this topic is very contentious mm-hmm. and can oftentimes be very political mm-hmm. um, in nature. So kind of on a larger scale, what are your thoughts on the kinds of societal trends and you can maybe identify the ones that you think are relevant mm-hmm. and maybe ideologies that play a role in terms of whether or not people support this kind of reform and support the idea of just because you have a record, it doesn't mean that you should be completely shut out from society. Mm-hmm. And I think you may even touch on the idea that you know, if you don't get employment and housing, then you're more likely to actually potentially go back. So what are your thoughts on the kind of larger ideologies and societal trends that exist and fuel people that either support these policies or maybe are vehemently against them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that there's a growing awareness and recognition that there are these structural inequalities that exist, right? And part of that awareness and acceptance is, you know, let's change policies. Let's do something differently here. Let's kind of modify the ways that, you know, try to eradicate this discrimination or harms that's perpetrated against individuals. So there's increasingly more of a like a social justice orientation, I would say, in the state of California, um, much more so than other places, of course. And I think we're seeing that come to fruition in terms of these various policies that have been passed, these that pertain to either decarceration or protections for justice impacted individuals. So that's kind of one, and I think there is a, a good amount of public support for social justice, right? In part fueled by some of the events that happened in 2020 with George Floyd and others, right? The flip side, however, is some individuals, and I hear this from some practitioners, are frustrated, not necessarily because they disagree with some of the policies, but what they're frustrated about from what I've heard is that they are frustrated there's a lack of kind of resources earmarked to help people transition. So it's like some of the policies are if you release more individuals, how do you help them transition successfully into society? What resources are you funneling towards that? What trainings are you provided to them? What educational opportunities are you giving to them? What housing options are do they have available to them? And so these are creating tensions for people of maybe the the policies are, you know, well-meaning, but when people actually are released, are they being taken care of? Are they being provided for in various ways to increase their odds of success? And I think that's where some of the frustration, I think, and pushback against some of these policies are, is that we kind of just haven't thought through the entire process or provided enough support for individuals to actually be successful all the way through and to have successful reintegration. And so I think that's some of the tension. And of course, some of the tension are just some people are just want to be really tough on crime and think that people don't really change, right? There's always people that believe that. But overall, I think more and more people have a changing kind of perspective about it, at least in California, like I said. I think it's good that we're slowly heading in the right direction. And I know it's a really, and like you mentioned earlier, I think at the beginning, it's a really, really difficult topic. And Mm -hmm. like you said, at the end, some people are just going to be against it, regardless of the arguments you present or regardless of any evidence uh, you present. And that's just part of the challenge of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, policy policy making can be difficult because of that. Um, But I think it's it's really good that there are at least ways to uh, move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, With that being said, Professor Aslan, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us to talk about to talk about an issue we've actually never talked about Mm -hmm. on the podcast, so I'm really excited to share with our audience. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. Our theme music was produced by C. Codain. I'm Kevin Karami. Till next time.